Welcome to Check the Program, a kitchen table podcast by four sometimes journalists who saw a desperate need for arts coverage in this fine city and decided to do something about it. I'm Sarah Petrescu. I'm John Thurlfall. I'm Melanie Trump-Hoover. I'm Amanda Farrell-Lowe, and today we'll be talking about Spelling Bee at Langham Court Theatre, talking a little bit about uh, the Victoria Symphony's Star Wars show. Uh, we'll be having a longer discussion about the history of queer theatre in Canada as uh, Outstages is coming up, and then uh, taking a little bit of a look ahead at what's coming up for the next few weeks. Thanks. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that Victoria occupies the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking and Coast Salish peoples, including what is now known as the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. As settler people, we have the privilege to live, work, and create on these lands, and much of the art we are discussing has also been created and performed here. Uh, I think this is the first show, Spelling Bee, the 25th Annual Putman County Spelling Bee. Uh, that's a long show title. <laughs> I think this is the first one all four of us have gone to uh, for quite a while. Yeah. If ever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, since we started the podcast, anyway. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good start to the year. Yeah. Fun start to the year. Yeah, it was a fun show. Was Had people seen it before? Yes, the Belfry I, presentation the Belfry, a few years which ago. Which was excellent, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I didn't think I saw the Belfry show, but then as I was watching it, music sounded familiar. But you know what, John? I think you might have just been playing it <laughs> in the office when we worked together. It has long been on my playlist since yeah. uh, it's 2005 win for the Tony Awards. Yeah. What's, what's your favorite song? Uh, I like Pandemonium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that one I recognize, the Magic Foot, and magic then the... Foot. Yeah. Her, you know, uh, oh, Olive song. Olive song. Mama, mama, mama. Yeah, I was yeah. like, I know these songs. Yeah. Like, I've heard them. I Speak Six Languages is a lovely song. Yeah, that one well. is good. So, I mean, I've got a weakness for this show just because William Finn, the uh, uh, musical lyrics writer for it, he's uh, sort of my favorite musical theater composer. Mm. Uh, I uh, like a lot of his early shows, uh, Falsetto Land and Your Brain, things like that. Um, yeah, so I, I I love this show, and it was nice for me to be able to take my kids to it because mm. they'd grown up listening to it, oh, literally yeah, grown up yeah, listening yeah, to it, funny. and it's the first time they'd seen it. But strong production on on the whole, I thought it was a very strong production. Yeah, beautiful little set. I felt like I was uh, transported right back to my uh, high school gymnasium by yeah, set designer. Yeah, the details, like the little yeah. ball marks on the wall, yeah. and the water stains Ooh. and things. Very clever. And who yeah. was the set designer? Um, Barbara Clarehue. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, I saw that name and I couldn't really think of much that I'd seen her do before, but yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know if she's been doing some of Lanham's other sets or not, but that's consistently the last handful of shows I've been at Lanham, their set is always that like intricately detailed and interesting yeah. no matter where it is. Yeah. They've so. been really excellent, like even, and so different too. Like Blythe Spirit was just beautiful mm-hmm. and it had sort of some interesting techie stuff. This one was more simple, but it took you right into the you know, high school gymnasium. I even like that you could see out the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was kinda, nice. was yeah nice it was event. really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like Pat Rendell's uh, direction. He's uh, one of my favorite musical theater directors in town. He's got a, a dab hand with musicals. He knows mm-hmm. how to fill the stage mm-hmm. and keep people moving and give you little surprises, but then also those tender moments in the show as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you could often look back at what the supporting cast was doing in the back and mm-hmm. they'd be doing something kind of fun and interesting. And yeah, yeah I quite liked that. And some real talent. It's, um, you know, I think Langham gets a real mix of people who have different professional backgrounds and then the amateur community theater. And it's, you know, sometimes it's really hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Like there's some really 
yeah, talented people in the cast. Um, Emily Nimitz um, as Rona, just an incredible voice, good actor, singer. Yeah, she was great. Um, and she was great in You're in Town months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. yeah. Cal Kushner as William Barfay. He kind of stole the <laughs> show. He yeah. was well, hilarious. He was hilarious, and he stole the show when Langham did Drowsy Chaperone a number of years ago as well. Okay, he was yeah. the man in the chair for that, and he stole yeah. that show too. Yeah. He's got so, great timing yeah. and totally. just like so yes, much charm. Yeah. I, had to, I had to say, Melanie, he, he made me look like. Uh, I thought it was your husband at first. <laughs> <laughs> he looks so much like Jamie. I, I may or may not have passed that on. Jamie doesn't see the resemblance himself. But isn't, isn't that true? We never see who we look it's like. the height and the curls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But even the smaller roles, I thought Liam Stevens did a great job as Leif Coneybear. He was mm-hmm. very yeah. funny. And uh, I like John Manson as the uh, vice principal, the underprincipal. Yeah, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it was good. He brought yeah. a droll touch to it, too. Yeah. And I always forget Langham. Like, they just have such a different way that they operate with their shows. Like, it'll be such... They'll rehearse for months, you know, in evenings mm-hmm. and after work, and and so they, yeah, it's just a different process, and I just appreciate having that theater. Mm-hmm. And I think we mention it every time we talk about Lena, but the costumes again mm-hmm. from yeah. Diane yeah. Dill this time, all in primary colors, mm-hmm. um, all I mean, they're dressing children, but it didn't feel like adults dressing as children mm-hmm. in quite that way, but had that incredibly playful feel, which the sure. whole production does it added so much to it for yeah. me yeah yeah the only downsides for me i wasn't really sold on the sound or mm-hmm. the lights mm-hmm. uh, i found there were a lot of dark spots lighting wise yeah. on the stage and uh, the cues seemed kind of slow to me uh and the sound yeah, these kind of pre-recorded soundtracks for musicals i have trouble with because you can't adjust the pacing of it if the cast yeah. speeds up or slows down and uh, I would almost rather have somebody with a keyboard tucked away on stage. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, the levels were a bit mismatched too. Yeah. So when the vocals were really high and loud and then the music was low, it sort of seemed odd. And yeah. then at other times the music was low, seemed more at the front and the vocals were low. So yeah, same, like or a little, a small band or something. Yeah. It's a high school band. It's <laughs> tricky, tricky because it's small space, but you know, yeah. you're in town showed us what they could do with that small space with, uh, with the band. and. And the cast and everything. Yeah, yeah. So. I think one uh, song that you we discussed earlier was uh, the unfortunate erection song. Right. Yes. It mm-hmm. should. It just kind of like, you know, hid in the background. It should have been like this really bombastic, yes, like really absolutely. hilarious. Like number. An erection. Yeah. yeah, but it was really <laughs> kind of muted. Like I felt yeah. at least, and we all went different nights, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, even on Saturday when we went, uh, it was you know. That was funny. It was cute, but it yeah. could have been a bit a bigger, bigger yeah. moment. It should be. Uh, <laughs> how, how many? It was a bit of a stiffy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, especially because it was that kind of set change a little bit intermission yeah. type feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. should have absolutely stolen the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was surprised that it was 90 minutes no intermission. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that you need an intermission, uh, but I was surprised that they clicked through it so quick. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciated that. Honestly, oh, yeah. I like those shows yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these days. I like yeah. going and having a great going to a great show, and then being able to go for dinner after, or I don't know. Or if you're like us, Sarah and I went early. We were the first people in the lobby and had, had a, a beer and hung out, <laughs> and then went home right after. Dealt with <laughs> children. It was great. Yeah. So I would say Spelling Bee is a shoe in if people want to go. Get yeah. tickets quick because they're I probably going to sell out. Oh, mm-hmm. I heard when we were going to get our tickets, they were saying certain nights were sold out. Oh, people okay. were coming up asking for mm-hmm. tickets. So, right. yeah, I think if people want to go, go. It's a great show. Yeah, yeah. it's super fun. Yeah, it was show, nice to see direction. lots of young people in the audience, too. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee runs to February the 2nd at Langham Court Theatre.
And Melanie, you saw some symphony. I did, yeah. Speaking of music, growing up with music, as your kids have with, with that soundtrack, um, I saw the symphony's latest in their pop series, the music of Star Wars on Saturday night. Also a sold out crowd, no surprise. Probably, a, you know, half regular symphony goers, half just hardcore Star Wars fans. Mm, some, awesome. of them, some of them in costume. Some of the, like, the, the flautist, one of the flautists on stage was dressed as Princess Leia. No. So the costumes. Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. Yeah. At, uh, after the intermission, the conductor came out as Obi-Wan Kenobi, actually. So they were having lots of fun. And there's not, you know, necessarily a lot to say about that. It is the music from Star Wars that you know and love. Mm. Um, but the the first half, and, and yeah, I guess what I will speak to is, is I think, how the symphony is broadening its audience with those kind of things. Um, for the first half, they, I mean, they opened with the 20th century fanfare and then right into, right? <laughs> so yes, charming. they did for the purists. <laughs> That's and that is their yeah, theater yeah, yeah, yeah. experience totally. of Star Wars. It mm-hmm. meant a lot. Yeah. Right into the theme, and then they really played. Which is my wedding song. Is it? Say, yeah. 20th century fanfare, or the theme, the oh, main the theme, theme of Star Wars? The main Wars? theme is my, this is my wedding song, which I didn't pick. It was picked for us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have uh, some friends who walked down to the Imperial March. Wow. <laughs> they are now oh, that's div- a good one. They're divorced now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's ominous. It's true. Um, and so the they got into like very much. Uh, um, spectrum of a piece from each Star Wars episode in the second half but the first was really a, a medley of different space opera music they played mm-hmm. some stuff from uh, Starfighter, from Avatar a uh, whole medley from the original Star Trek right through to the new movies and that was, I think it it expanded people's palettes that were just there for Star Wars and then came out and in the second half and were quite methodical about it and big credit to um, the conductor Sean O'Loughlin who added so much um, depth and texture to each piece. In between um, uh, each piece, he was speaking about his own nostalgia and experience with the songs, um, gave a lot of context from composer John Williams, uh, what he was thinking and you know crafting everything from Leia's theme to different lightsaber battles and whatnot. And I think added, like I said, I think a lot of people were there because they love Star Wars movies and maybe mm-hmm. hadn't thought about the music in that um, to that level of detail, certainly, or, or in that context, and brought new, it to life in, in a totally different way. He actually credited the soundtrack from A New Hope as being why he's even a conductor. Wow. That, he, that he made a, recorded yeah. a mixtape of it, mm. listened to it on a road, long road trip, and was hooked, and that's cool. what he was going to do that's with so his cool. life. Mm. Um, and speaking of the Imperial March, my unborn child had a very strong reaction. Oh, really? oh, I, I don't know what to read into the that. Is strong, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it was a Jedi lookout. Um, but I had—I mean, I'm familiar with the music. I'm not a uh, perhaps a diehard fan, um, but even for me, Leia seemed something I'm familiar with. But it was actually yeah. such an incredibly beautiful piece yeah. when heard in that context. And even the Imperial March, who I didn't. Everybody knows the brass mm-hmm. from that, but the violins are stunning, mm-hmm. and, and I had no idea. So yeah. the friend I went with actually had never been to the symphony before, um, and I asked him, uh, you know, if he'd if he was hooked, if it was interesting just from that pops Star Wars perspective or whatnot, and he's interested in seeing their classical work now. So oh, that's cool. I think yeah. that you know, to the symphony's credit, they've got. They're playing um, the score to The Wizard of Oz, to a screen of The Wizard of Oz later in the in the year, I think in March, and um, some work with 
with uh, Queen as well, mm. um, Queen's work. And I think in, in doing that, those really, um, you know, pop friendly, everybody knows that music uh, type of performances mm. and concerts, hopefully they are building, yeah. building an I audience. Think it's so important to have that, those sort of gateway shows mm. for people. Sure. Yeah. Um, because especially as we talk about having a, a local orchestra and how it sort of engages young people to play music mm-hmm. and um, introduces new people to the symphony, it's yeah, it's great to have that mix. And Star Wars, there's so much you know emotional connection and nostalgia to the music, um, even if you're not a classical music lover. Mm-hmm. Like in 50 years from now, 100 years from now that's going to be the music sure. that orchestras are playing mm-hmm. yeah. because that's and it will be looked at with the same reverence as you know Beethoven or like a, that will be the popular music sure. right well so. it's no stretch to say that film music is the soundtrack of the 20th century because mm-hmm. yeah. there's so much Sean Laughlin he came in a couple of years ago with the James Bond package as well with Bond music and other spy music as well and uh, he does a lot of these kind of traveling um Pops pieces where he goes around and plays with other symphonies. And, mm-hmm. uh, I really like the packages he brings in. It's funny you mentioned that about your your friend never having gone. There's three people now I've heard of who went to that symphony concert who had never been to a symphony ever. Mm-hmm. And it, it just shows that it works. Cool. Yeah, and I've heard that they've done like Halloween ones too, yeah. you know, Nosferatu yeah. and things. Mm-hmm. And, I've, and I've heard that too. And I always think whenever they, I watch the Oscars and they have the mm-hmm. Composers Award, I think, oh, I'd love to go see this live. Mm-hmm. So it's great to see that that's being programmed. Yeah, and well, and I'll close with it's also quite a pleasure to see it in the royal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for now. For now. For now. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So. Yeah, uh, not much more of a development there, I guess. Uh, I guess the uh, RMTS has agreed to hold off on the increases until the end of everybody's seasons. They're supposed to come into effect at the beginning of uh, beginning of the year. So hopefully that means there are some negotiation going on. I reached mm-hmm. out to the Pro Art Alliance because as John pointed out last time, has members of both sides of that argument mm-hmm. on there and they say they're gonna come out with a statement soon. So I'm curious to hear mm-hmm. what they have to say. And yeah, I, I think that it might be worth us reaching out to some folks who would be these potential new people who would be booking these yeah. spaces like who are yeah who are the local artists the local companies who want to book the spaces but they can't it'd be interesting to hear from them um you know in the success of the king and i that just came in that shows there mm-hmm. is an appetite for larger touring productions that come in and play yeah. there as well mm-hmm. so yeah we'll see what happens yeah yeah so we'll stay tuned on that yeah. um yeah not much other uh, not much in the news file today, but Melanie went and spoke with a couple folks about uh, Without Stages coming up. It seemed like a good opportunity to look at the history of queer theatre in Canada. And luckily we have a couple of great resources here in Victoria to talk to you about it. So I'll let you take it away. Take it away, Melanie. Sure, yeah. I've been curious about the evolution of queer theatre festivals locally and across Canada for a while. So like you said, with the festival coming up, um, on February 1st, it seemed like a great time to explore that with with a few different voices from the artistic and, and actually really academic perspective. Um, so one of the people I spoke with on this topic is Alan Chafe. 
He's a sessional instructor at UVic, and he's studying the impact that queer theater festivals have on the social movement in each respective city that they're operating in. So his specific research focused on three festivals, uh, on Rhubarb in Toronto, Pretty Witty and Gay in Lethbridge, of all places, <laughs> wow, and yeah. outstages, of course, in Victoria. And he chose to study these festivals for their differences in size and scope, obviously. I mean, Rhubarb was 100 performers. Um, the Lethbridge Festival is about 20. Um, their history and their community context, but actually found common themes and the perceived benefits of each of them. All the festivals are really building a sense of queer community uh, in the cities uh, that they're operating in. And I think that's important because queer people probably know and our straight allies that we're kind of losing a lot of LGBT establishments and spaces where queer people can go and meet and mingle. The spaces have opened up to, you know, clubs and nightclubs and other spaces have allowed us to, as queer people, to also go to those spaces. But, you know, even in talking to people, people say, but it's still not a dedicated queer space. Whereas when you go to these festivals, it is a dedicated queer space. And we're, you know, rather than being the minority in that space were the majority in that space. So yeah, Alan interviewed more than 70 festival participants for his research, from performers and patrons to queer activists and producers, and each of these groups saw the benefits of queer-focused theatre festivals a little bit differently. So if we're looking at particularly just performers, one of the things that has come out is, is what we call a community of practice. And so a lot of the performers ha have mentioned that they've never been in a space where they've been able to meet other queer performers. And uh, many of the performers have talked about how they've met other queer performers and then it's led to future collaborations with them. So. From that benefit, it, it, I think it's really fueling new art and new works of art, and it's, you know, it's going to hopefully keep, we're going to see more of it. I also spoke with Sean Guest, who's curator of Victoria's Outstages Festival, about his thoughts on the benefits for performers. And he picked up on this notion of community practice too, saying that while most, uh, while more developed, sorry, queer productions are now touring, and in some cases are even main stage presentations, um, dedicated, dedicated queer art festivals can really highlight those smaller shows and lead to the creation of more interdisciplinary work. What happens with those shows that are still in development or those artists who, whose work is not quite ready to go on a national tour? And I think that's where some of these smaller festivals and definitely these queer festivals have a niche to serve these artists and the audiences with seeing brand new work or brand new voices or kind of more experimental shows and also how can other companies that aren't presenting or producing queer work support queer artists? And is there some way that we can infiltrate those with a queer agenda, for lack of a better word? Can, there, can we work on queer dance show with a dance presenter? Can we work on a queer opera with a music presenter? How can we cross those boundaries between disciplines? And also how can we cross those boundaries between audiences and give them something unexpected and incredible, whether it's bringing together community, whether it's showcasing a really powerful artist, or whether it's changing their life a little bit with something that they've never thought of before. I love that community of practice concept. Mm -hmm. Like it's so, it's one that comes up in my work at uh, working at a research center and like working with different communities and how important that is to really strengthen the overall work, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's uh, helping, you know, these sometimes overlooked marginalized communities really connect with an, 
with other folks and really kind of spread what the knowledge that they yeah. have beyond their little mm -hmm. community. I think that's awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, Sean was just talking there about the development of queer opera and stuff. And this this past season, we saw uh, Rufus Wainwright's Hadrian that was mm -hmm. mounted in Toronto. And uh, that was one of the first, if not the first, I don't know if it was the first, but uh, a queer opera uh, with queer themes and queer performers in it. And it was, you know, I know the reception from the queer audience for that was fantastic as well. Uh, local talent showed up in that. Isaiah Bell was the uh, Hadrian's lover in that. Yeah, and Sean also, he spoke to, to that point about pushing audience boundaries too. And that's something that Alan heard over and over again in this research, that there's this immense amount of informal learning that's happening at queer festivals across the country, especially, of course, for straight identified people, mm. but also members of the queer community too. From the perspective of festival goers, I think not only are they able to meet new people, new friends, potentially even new partners or sexual partners, which has also come out of the research. So there's that benefit, but also there's a lot of learning that's happening. I had one participant who identified as a lesbian who after seeing this trans performer performance, really like in interviewing her, she, she you know, she, she felt that she had a better understanding of what it was like to be trans uh, in terms of, and also the difference between sexuality and gender and how it's more fluid and they described that you know they would be more comfortable approaching those people but also talking about trans issues and what it means to be trans as a result. Uh, one queer activist told Ellen that their city's festival fuels their heart to go forward for the rest of the year, which is just a really beautiful sentiment. Yeah, um, but especially that it provides a space outside of Pride Fest to get the queer energy that they don't get in their everyday life. And as we know, Pride Festivals have grown a lot in a lot of communities across Canada over the past few years, but not necessarily in a way that represents all members of the queer community. And that's a gap that Alan thinks festivals have the potential to fill. I think when we look at a lot of pride organizations over the past several years, I think they've there's a lot of issues that have arisen and uh, there's been a lot of infighting that's happened and a lot of them are struggling on different levels. One of the major struggles, I think, comes back to intersectionality is, you know, whether we look at um, in Toronto where the Black Lives Matter movement started and, you know, that whole disruption that they've amazingly caused and forced the community to look at and the organization. I think that this is something, an outlet that has been overlooked, that these queer theatre festivals are very intersectional, whether we're looking at audience members or the topics or themes uh, of the performances. And so I think it's addressing that need that and dialogue is happening around these intersectional issues, whether it's people of color or indigenous issues, misogyny, patriarchy, really that are starting to be discussed within pride organizations, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done there. And I think, you know, I think we could look to these queer theater festivals as a model. Yeah, I mean, you think even there were discussions around police and pride at the, our own pride mm -hmm. festival. Sure. Here in mm. Victoria, it became a, a very hot button issue, and we even now have an alternative pride, mm -hmm. you know, for folks who don't feel welcome or comfortable at yeah. the, you know, the more quote unquote mainstream pride events. So, and I like what he said about festivals sort of filling a need mm -hmm. because so much has hinged on pride festivals to deliver for you know different communities for so long that you see each year, like you know, we covered. All of us have covered Pride for various media organizations, and each year there are there's Alt Pride. There's people who talk about policing. There are people who talk about, you know, not feeling like it's a safe space because there's drinking or 
drugs or, you know, like you just see that there's a need for people to have that community um, and that a week of Pride events might not fill it. You know, it's not like one week a year. Yeah. Um, whereas like in, you know, arts festivals really do bring a different sense of space. Um, yeah. And I, I like the fact that they moved it into February because why yeah. does everything have to be ghettoized mm-hmm. into Pride Week? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like bring it to another time of the year, which yeah. is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, February is good timing because there's the smaller theater festivals that are happening. Well, not that they're small, but things like Push that's happening. Mm-hmm. And um, this one, and they were coming up on Spark at the Belfry. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it is kind of a festival time, so it does kind of make sense to have it at mm-hmm. this time of the year. Especially too. festivals that are bringing in kind of more groundbreaking, yes. edgier, interesting yeah. work. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I just keep thinking about, it's so funny how far this discussion has come even in like the last 10 12 years it amazes me i remember working at the times colonist in 2006 and having to argue to get them to take the word gay pride out of my pride story <laughs> like like they wouldn't do it and i was like it's just pride it's not gay pride and they were like the listeners won't or the readers won't understand and i'm like yeah they will i mean and that wasn't even that long ago but right. now look at how uh how much we've moved the discussion into talking about intersectionality and mm. yeah it's amazing well, how much has changed one, one time at the times colonist where someone was writing about the beatles and we had to put in a popular british band Come on. True story. How is that possibly? <laughs> if any readership is going to know who the beatles is. Uh, no. Makes you feel better. Anyway, but I see your point. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Outstage is a great example of everything you're just talking about because it's not just, you know, it's queer theater, but it's, you know, you look at the trans movement, how far and how fast that has come. And you're looking at the lineup for uh, for this year, and there's trans representation, there's indigenous representation, there's drag representation, uh, there's uh, an old burlesque queer showcase. There's a little bit of everything in there, which, mm-hmm. which is great. Which yeah, is great. it's not just, you mm-hmm. know, uh, cis, white, male pride Ooh. stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and Sean spoke to that of that challenge I guess that enduring need for more representation because you're right you look at the festival this year and you see so many different perspectives and and um, and yet it's something he's thinking about constantly as he's sure. looking to to years in the future and what to program in Victoria it's also a challenge though because the queer community is so divided that you I've I feel a lot of pressure to try to to showcase every voice and every facet and as a queer artist myself I totally understand that and you want visible representation and you want to give voice to these artists and I that's a constant struggle is how can you do the best job that you can and still there's still going to be people not at the table and pieces missing and that's what next year is for that's what the year after is for and that's why when we're when, when I'm programming when I'm curating I'm looking ahead to what what's potentially missing from this festival and what can we do next year that's not represented. And so, yeah, with queer festivals in Canada really growing for the most part in size and attention, I asked Sean whether or not the kind of work he's seen across the country has shifted to, um, especially as we're seeing the queer social movement struggling in other parts of the world, in Chechnya, in south, south of us in the mm-hmm. United States, and, and what he's seen there. I think that when we first started the festival, which was in 2015, a lot of the programming that year was really kind of personal and personal stories and 
there was a show, um, A Quiet Sip of Coffee, that was about someone's experience at, at gay conversion camp. And then I think things shifted a little bit and became a bit more less personal and more kind of timely in terms of things that were happening across the nation. There also have has been a bit of work that's kind of reflecting back on queer history, queer icons, queer historical figures, or what's interesting this year is kind of Ivan and Coyote and Sarah McDougall's show Trader Time kind of reflects a little bit on who is the gatekeeper of history and who holds mm -hmm. history. Is it written? Is it oral? And where does queer history fit into that? And who has ownership over this history when it's not tracked in paper because queer history is still fairly new to actually being in recorded. So I was very excited to hear about Trader Time, Ivan and Sarah McDougall's show mm -hmm. as a Yukoner. Uh, Trader Time is this amazing radio show that is still going in the Yukon and it's basically a call-in classified ad that happens for an hour every more every Saturday morning you call them up and you describe this thing that you have to sell and say your phone number on the air and they keep track of all of it and it just <laughs> turns into this zany weird like because you're everybody's so spread out there like radio is something that everybody has and so it's like like it was one of those things that I didn't realize was weird until I moved away <laughs> <laughs> like how they used to drop peanuts from a uh, helicopter every Canada day at the lake where we had our why yeah <laughs> The that was a like, peanut allergy. Yeah, I don't, well, this was, the, this was the 80s. <laughs> Nobody was allergic. And we also had this big radio bingo thing that would happen every few months where everyone would buy bingo cards at their local store and then we'd all gather around our radios at, with our bingo dabbers. And so the whole territory is tuned into the radio station playing bingo. And Trader Time was, and it's still going apparently, this yeah, show. Even in the post Craigslist era. So I wonder, is it going to be like a spoken word poetry and music? Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to hear it because it's like such a soft spot for me this show I mean I'm I'm a bit younger than Ivan so our paths never crossed uh, up there but uh, yeah as a fellow Yukoner I am very excited Sarah yeah. McDougall is awesome I've seen her play a bit uh, alt country um, rock bluegrass I saw her at Logan's a few times cool so, yeah. Yeah. yeah great and so yeah from Sean's perspective the evolution, this evolution of content has happened locally in Victoria too, um, especially in terms of the volume of work that's being created uh, that has the potential to find bigger audiences. I think that there's, there is a lot happening now and maybe there always has been, but it's been kind of underground. It's, it's how do you support those artists who are performing in pop-up spaces or in clubs? How do you take them to the next level? There's a very strong and healthy drag scene and kind of an underground music scene too and a lot of indie theater happening too and I really want to find ways that we can provide platforms and showcase these artists maybe that means that we give them some support or some mentorship or that means that we are their first ever festival and, and we we teach them how that works so that they have this platform that then they can go on and they can showcase what Victoria artists are creating and working on and yeah, that progression that he speaks to is actually a key point that Alan saw in his research too. Uh, he told me that each city, of course, it's in a really different place in terms of where it is with its queer social movement. And so the learning that's happening at each of these festivals and when this within this movement is really tied to where that city is 
um, politically and culturally right now. So for example, even just the um, posters to promote the festival in Lethbridge brings level of visibility to the queer community that, that like just that they're there and exist, mm-hmm. let alone the art and the festival mm-hmm. itself. So it was uh, that, that kind of progress piece and how that fits in with his research was a real thing too. Oh, very cool. Thanks, yeah. Melanie. That was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. So yeah. Outstage is coming up February 1st to 9th. Um, what else is coming up in the horizon? Oh, a few things. Um, Bears at the Belfry. That's the next main stage production mm-hmm. starting January 31st. Uh, what else we got coming uh, up? Victoria Film Festival is oh, running yes. February 1st to 10th, the 25th anniversary of the mm-hmm. film festival. Uh, they always bring in interesting programming as well. Um, I, I often like the uh, the ancillary things they do as well. Mm-hmm. I know this year they're having a curated series in the atrium that will run the length of the festival. So I like the shorts programs. I always enjoy the shorts yeah. too. You know? Yeah. You know, you get a little bit of everything, and it sets mm-hmm. a nice mood, and then three minutes later, it's done, and you're on to the next yeah, thing. Yeah, if you hate it, there's it's over soon. Yeah, there's another one. That's great. Just, like, plays without intermission. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, CCPA is mounting Sweet Charity, which is a musical not a lot of people know, mm-hmm. um, running February 1st to 9th. Um, a couple of good songs came out of that one, but, yeah, it's not a it's not a household name, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to come back, uh, I guess, early February with uh, a few things to talk about. Um, yeah, we did have a little planning session and yeah. talked about exploring some more themes. Sunday morning kitchen table yeah. session. So, uh, yeah, we're hoping to explore some more uh, timely issues that are happening mm-hmm. here, uh, arts-wise and beyond, I think, things that uh, a lot of... Uh, cities and arts organizations are mm-hmm. uh, grappling with so yeah. and we're going to move to uh, a different kind of a format for our reviews as well we'll continue to talk about them uh, on the air like this but we're also going to make them available in a print form by a free subscription newsletter mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. so that'll be great for people who want to grab pull quotes to use in their own social media or their own review packages or for funding opportunities as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they want to look back and find all the reviews in one place yeah exactly so we'll have those yeah. available soon oh that's one thing i should mention speaking of funding uh the canada council is on tour right now with their funding programs they're doing an information session here in town on january 30th at the art gallery oh great um, yeah so if people want to find out more about getting canada council funding January 30th, AGGV. Great. Well, thanks, John. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for tuning in to our first episode of 2019. We appreciate all your support so far. Always welcome uh, new ideas and suggestions. Uh, Check the program YYJ is our email. Uh, Check the program on Facebook and Twitter. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Amanda Farrell-Lowe. I'm Sarah Petrescu. I'm John Trofall. I'm Melanie Trump-Hoover. And don't forget to... Check, Check the program! The program.